Hello everyone, this is Mark McGuinness of Natural Action. I'm very pleased to be joined on this call by the writer Stephen Pressfield. Steve, thanks very much for joining me for the interview. My pleasure, Mark, and thanks a lot for having me. As I've no doubt many of you know, Steve is an acclaimed novelist. Many of his books have uh, historical and military themes. He's also written Hollywood screenplays, and more recently he's ventured into online publishing with a really fabulous blog, of which we'll be talking a bit later on. I'm going to start with a quote from one of Steve's fictional characters, Telamon, who said, It is one thing to study war and another to live the warrior's life. Now, Unlike some writers of military fiction, Steve has lived the warrior's life to some degree. He served as a U.S. Marine, and his novels about ancient military campaigns are so well-researched and executed that they're actually on the curriculum at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. I gather, Steve, is this right, that the some of your books have achieved cult status among the U.S. troops? Yeah, I, I in guess they have. And <laughs> Afghanistan, you know, they're, they're passing them around while they're between duty. Is that right? That's right. In fact, uh, it's in terms of making money as a novelist, it's not so it's not so great actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, an officer sent me a copy of the Afghan campaign that had been making its rounds in Afghanistan, and he had everybody who read it sign it, and it was like thirty six people had signed it. But of course, it was only one copy. So, but it's a great honor. I'm uh, you know really kind of amazed and, and and happy about that. Well, you know that that's great. You know, real testament to the to the power of the writing. That, that people in that situation are, are, are reading it you know, and, and finding it helpful. It's interesting that another one of your books, The War of Art, has achieved similar status among people up against it in quite different circumstances. And I'm, I'm talking about writers, artists, and other people trying, struggling to make the most of their creative talent. And, you know, it's a real... It's one of the books, actually, that inspired lateral action because when Brian and Tony and I were knocking around ideas for the website before we started, we all picked The War of Art as one of the books that we said was a touchstone of, of what we were trying to achieve with the site, which is really helping people get down and do that difficult, challenging, creative, frustrating work that it's so easy to shy away from and, you know, spend your time on other things. But if, if you can push through the resistance as you've defined it in The War of Art, then that's where the true rewards in art and in, in life come from. So... Steve, let's start with The War of Art, and I find it interesting that it's a classic book on creativity, but you've explicitly addressed it to not only to artists, but also to entrepreneurs, to athletes, to political, environmental activists as well. Why did you decide to write with such a broad audience in mind, rather than just writing another book about artistic creativity well actually i didn't mark right. and the uh, <laughs> oddly enough this was really my publisher i have a wonderful publisher named sean coin who uh, brought the book out and uh, when i originally wrote it i did exactly the opposite of what you said I, it was the original title was the writer's life mm -hmm. and i meant it to be only for writers and i and i thought it only applied to writers. And when John read it, he said, oh, no, he said, this is much broader. You got to kind of expand this a little bit. So I did in a revision of the first draft. But what has been really interesting to me going to your question is that the emails and letters that have come into me since the book came out have been totally across the board. I mean, right. dancers, photographers. In fact, I have a, I'm have sitting here right now on my desk looking at a wonderful book that I just got. It's from a guy named Nick Murray. It's called The Game of Numbers. And it is about 
he is a, a coach or a mentor to financial advisors, to like guys who would help plan your retirement or something like that. And his book is just like The War of Art. And it's about what he calls prospecting, which I guess is the cold calling that you have to do if you're in a business like that, where yeah. you, know, you just call people, try to get leads, try to get a piece of business. Mm -hmm. And apparently, this is, goes to the entrepreneurial thing. These entrepreneurs have just as big a resistance as writers have to the blank page or as actors have to letting it all hang out, you know, in front of the camera. Yeah. So I was amazed that it does, that these principles of resistance and overcoming resistance seem to apply just across the board to anybody that's trying to kind of take their life to a higher level. You know, that that's really interesting, Steve, because you're bringing back some rather challenging memories for me of previous business where I actually used cold calling as a way of building the business. And I know exactly what you mean about that resistance. You know, I mean, that must be the hardest thing of all. To me, short of stand-up comedy, <laughs> that takes yeah, more that, guts than anything. I, I could never do that. that. That would be really tough. But I can instantly see what you mean there, that there's that, I would rather be doing anything else today. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, I think from my perspective, having worked with, I'm not an actor myself, but I've worked with actors and these days work with entrepreneurs as well as those in, in the arts. I think you're absolutely right. What is it that you think that, that makes it so difficult? Because on one level, it's what we want to do, isn't it? You know, you, you want to be a writer, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to act, you want to get on the stage. But yeah. when it comes to it, what is it that, that gets in the way? Well, certainly we can all agree that there is something that gets in the way. You know, anytime anybody, any of us try to start an exercise program or a meditation practice, or if we're going to face the blank page and write a book or anything like that that pushes us to a higher level, this force, this negative force that I call resistance with a capital R, rises up and we start procrastinating. We come up with every reason in the world not to do what it is that we're going to do. And my kind of, uh, or that we ought to do, you know, I've, I've actually been taking a class in Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. There's a really interesting thing, kind of blew my mind when I heard it. The rabbi, Rabbi Finley, is teaching this class here in Los Angeles, and he was, and sort of this, the structure that the Kabbalah has for the sort of the way the world works is that there is the soul, the neshama, which is kind of a divine element sort of above us and that has our, you know, our best interests at heart and is trying to call us to our, our true calling and our higher level. And then there is this force that they call the yet and I had never heard this before, but it's like a duplicate for what I call resistance. It's this kind of devil, sort of negative force that not only tries to sabotage our work, but tries to block us from getting to that soul, the neshama level. I guess it's just, you know, light and shadow, good and evil, the, the forces that uh, just as gravity will kind of keep pulling us down or entropy will, it's a natural force that will make trees fall and things decompose, organic matter decompose. That seems to be just naturally in opposition with the sort of call to the angels or the call to rise to a higher level. It just it just seems to be part of nature. In my experience, and certainly from all the emails and responses I've gotten to the book, it's an objective, impartial negative force. It's it just seems to work like rain or the transiting of the stars. It's not personal at all, but it, it just is a constant negative that we need to overcome. Mm -hmm. In the book, you've got this concept of, of turning pro as a way of overcoming resistance. Can you explain what you mean by that? I'll be delighted to. Hmm. Now, let me, let me talk a little bit, Mark. I'll just a little bit more about resistance. Resistance appears in so many forms. It appears in a, as a kind of a voice in our heads. I think you'd agree with this, too, that it's trying to talk us 
out of doing the work that we know we ought to do. It'll tell us, ah, oh, today we shouldn't do that. We should, you know, let's take the kids to uh, the amusement park or something mm -hmm. like that. It's incredibly insidious, this voice of resistance, because it will, it's just so, as subtle as a serpent. Like even in, um, when I started to work on the War of Art and was putting that down uh, on paper, the, the, the voice of resistance told me I was a novelist. I shouldn't be writing nonfiction, that what I should do with these thoughts is make them into characters and put them in a work of fiction. <laughs> that is pretty goddamn subtle in terms of trying to, you know, undermine you. And sneaky. Pretty sneaky. It's really uh, like a serpent. The other thing about resistance is that sometimes even people we know can embody resistance, those closest to us. For instance, sometimes um, groups of friends, let's say, who hang out at the pub or who have a kind of a little tacit conspiracy to waste their lives, and they're, everybody kind of all hangs out together and kind of does nothing. And then if suddenly if one of those people, if you're a poet, let's say, and you suddenly decide, well, I'm going to get serious about this stuff. If I'm going to actually take an hour, two hours a day, and I'm going to be working on my poetry, what you'll find, resistance is so subtle that your buddies, your friends, will start trying to sabotage you. And they'll say, no, you're not the same guy you used to be, Mark. What's the story? You used to be at the pub with us. What's the matter? You become some other kind of a guy. And they will... Right. And so even in relationships in like your own spouse or the or your own family, the people closest to you will will try to sabotage you. And the reason they're doing it is, is not that they are bad people or anything like that, but they're dealing unconsciously with their own resistance that they know in their own hearts that there's something that they should be doing, something they should be uh, an art or a calling that they might be pursuing. And when you start doing your poetry, it acts as a reproach to them and they don't like that. And so even unconsciously, they'll try to sabotage you. But of course, it's really the self-sabotage that brings you down the most. So anyway, I'm just, I'm just trying to give our listeners a little more of a feeling of what capital R resistance is in my mind. Shall I get to turning pro or do you want to, Mark, do you have something you want to jump in on here? No, that's good. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's a very good point because you spend quite a lot of time in the first part of, of the War of Art really looking at resistance and its multifaceted aspects. And I think it's a good point that it's not just one thing because if it were, then, you know, you could deal with that. You learn how to deal with that. The trouble is once you, it's, it's like the Hydra. You know, you cut one head off, another two grow in its place. Right, right. Um, or, or the Greek god Proteus, who could change from one, you know, shapeshift. Yeah. The biggest break. Let me tell you my own little personal story here of how this kind of happened with me. This is how I sort of became aware of resistance when I was a young guy, married to, uh, you know, the, the, the love of my life from 23, 24 years old. I decided to write a novel. Crazy idea. And uh, I worked, you know, for like two years on this thing. I got 99.9% .9 of the way through it. And resistance just overcame me. And I just choked, chickened out, froze, just dropped the ball and wound up acting out in numbers of ways. When I say acting out, I mean sexually drug abuse, you name it. And blowing my whole marriage, you know, to the girl I loved, hurting her, disappointing everybody. And I went on a kind of a downward spiral odyssey of uh, job after job after job, just going farther and farther into the toilet. Mm -hmm. And the whole villain here was resistance, but I never knew it. I was just completely blind to it. And finally, I sort of washed up like seven years later in New York City in this kind of hellhole apartment and at kind of at the end of my rope. And through this whole time, I had kept this one crappy old typewriter with me. And one night when I was like about a step away from suicide, I just decided to sit down and try to do a little writing, even though I hated the idea of it and it was like the worst thing in the world to me. And I managed to kind of 
tap out, you know, about an hour and a half's worth of garbage on the on the typewriter. But when I was done, suddenly there was this sort of revelation where I was happy. Hmm. I felt calm, and I just knew that I had turned the corner at that point. And I knew that if I kept on writing and didn't stop, no matter how lousy it was or how long it took, or if I never succeeded at all, that I would be okay and that I had broken. And then I sort of began to get the idea that there was this force called resistance. And simply knowing that it exists, resistance with a capital R, is a huge step to overcoming it. Because when you know it exists and you hear that voice in your head that says, well, maybe we shouldn't work today. Maybe we should do something else. Then you don't take that seriously anymore. You realize it's kind of like a thought that comes in meditation where you just yeah. look at it, let it go. You just yeah. say, that is just that is just bullshit talking here, and I'm just going to ignore it and do my work. And so that's a huge, huge, that was a huge breakthrough for me. That was my sort of personal story. And if you will, I'll keep rambling here about turning pro, what you're talking about. I mean, many people, I mean, the, the question that kind of arises when, once you identify resistance with a capital R, is okay. Well, how do you beat it? How do you know? How do you make yourself do it? And um, to me, there's there's no uh, there's no magic bullet. There's no magic pill. There's no royal road. There's no easy way. There's nothing that anybody can help you with. Nobody can coach you. Nobody can prep you. You do, you have to do it yourself. It just comes absolutely down to that. Now, a lot of people have different metaphors or analogies or ways they psych themselves up mentally. And what worked for me was the concept I call turning pro. In other words, making the attitude switch in your mind from being an amateur to being a professional. One of the things I think that people who are defeated by resistance, artists, entrepreneurs, whoever, who are trying to do something and can't make themselves do it. The one thing that they share, in my opinion, is they all have an amateur attitude. What turns the key and makes it all happen is changing that attitude to a professional attitude. For instance, an amateur does something. Let's talk about writers because that's what I understand. An amateur would uh, treat his writing, and as a poet, I'm sure you know this, Mark, as good as anybody, as an avocation. Yeah. It's kind of a weekend warrior, sort of something you do on the side, so that when obstacles arise, when resistance comes up, it's very easy for an amateur to say, well, okay, I'll do it tomorrow, or I just won't do it. But if you can just change that attitude to a professional attitude, then you know that you show up on the job every day, no matter what. Rain or shine, you got to be there, just like at your regular job. So that's the short version. I could go on and on on this subject, but it's the trick to me was simply making that mental switch, that attitude switch that said, I'm now a professional. I play hurt just like an athlete. If my knee hurts, my elbow hurts, I get out on the basketball court or whatever, and I play. And I don't accept any excuses. I do it every day, and I do it over the long haul. This is it for the rest of my life. And that gives me a much more hardcore attitude toward it and enables me, this is what works for me anyway, enable me to, to be able to overcome resistance that way and sit down and do my work. Well, thanks, Steve. That's a really great story. I mean, I think the thing that stood out for me was where you were saying, I'm going to sit down and write even though I hate it even though I don't want to do it you know it's it's that even though it's like the athlete even though it hurts I'm going to get out there and do it yeah, it's, it's really sort of like what heroes in combat say where they say that the fear the terror is there they don't overcome that, but they just learn to act in the face of terror, even though they are terrified. And resistance, of course, takes the form of fear. That's really what it is. We're a fear. We, we're afraid of failing. We're afraid of succeeding. We're afraid of hanging it out there and people ridiculing us. We're afraid of, uh, you know, leaving our job and starving to death, whatever. So that fear will never go away. 
But a professional attitude is to just, even though you're afraid, you're a fireman, let's say, you go in and they building anyway. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's funny, again, I was thinking what you sat there with the typewriter reminded me of me, the turning point in my business where I, I was doing the cold calling. I'm sure this is a, a very familiar experience for anybody who's tried it. You know, you end up, it's incredibly discouraging because you, you're ringing up, you're ringing up, you're ringing up. And people are saying no, they're saying no, they're saying no. You're interrupting them. It's you, you don't like doing that. They probably don't enjoy being interrupted either. And it got to a point where I thought, actually, it would be really easy to fail at this. And I would have plenty of excuses because everybody knows cold calling is hard and everybody knows people don't want to be interrupted and everybody knows it's hard to sell over the phone. You know, and I could have gone back to my business partners and said, well, hey, guys, it was just too hard. And I thought, but I don't want the, ex you know, and I thought, well, I could either, I could have all the excuses I wanted or I could find a way to succeed. And I can remember the day I made the decision, I don't want the excuses anymore. You know, I've had enough of that. I want to succeed at this. And that, I think, that was the decision that led to my first real business success. You know, everything else I'd done up to then had been the kind of, you know, the, the amateur, if you like. But this was the first time I really succeeded and, and you know, got the business to the level that I want. Well, let me ask you, Mark, how, how did you succeed? What was the change? How did you, did you change your attitude toward the cold calling? What happened? I think it was persistence as much as anything. Well, I was also, I was doing a, a lot of listening to American sales gurus because, the, you know, people like Zig Ziglar, uh -huh. these guys were so completely different to meet my own personality that I thought, you know, that complete extrovert, lovely guy, you know, really just kind of a, a fountain of energy. And I knew I had to be a bit more like Zig. I had to be a bit more outgoing. I had to push myself outside the comfort zone. And actually, you know, when I got the first big deal came in, because it was business consulting, I was selling training services. And the guy actually said to me, he said, you were the guy who persisted. You, whenever I rang, I, you, ah. I wasn't ready. I said, can you ring me in a couple of months? And I rang him in a couple of months. And he said, can you ring me in three months? And, I did. and apparently all the others salespeople fell by the wayside. I was the only one who actually kept going. <laughs> ah, said, that's well, great. Well, that's a great story. This guy's persistent. I might as well give him a chance. And it was actually yeah. you know, turned into a, a load of work for us that, you know, kind of paid our bills for a, a couple of years after that. Uh -huh. So I think there's definitely, you know, what you well, said. Good for you. That was great. That decision that you said when you realize this is resistance and I can give into it, or I can persist and accept all the pain. And I think you say in the War of Art about all the bird shit that lands on you. <laughs> you, know, you just, you just got to wash it off and, and dust yourself down and get going again. I mean, actually, you and I were talking about this a little earlier, Mark, was that the bad news when you think about this is that it's a real negative force that is very painful to overcome. But the good news, the flip side of that, is that your fate is completely in your own hands. Yeah. And that you, any of us, it's not like having a disease or something that, you know, is just out of your control. It's completely in our control and at any moment or I mean, right this minute we can turn it around if we're a writer i mean you could just unplug this podcast go into our office and start writing mm -hmm. so at any moment all the power is in our hands we just have to make the decision and do it so that's the good news okay well it's good to know there is some good news <laughs> lots any, of good news i mean we you've looked at just making that decision and sitting down to do it in spite of that being part of being the pro anything else that you would say distinguishes the pro from 
the amateur. You know, things uh, people... Many, many things distinguish yeah. the pro, but the pro sort of has a set of virtues that he or she develops over time. For one thing, a professional is patient, just like you were in that story about being persistent. A professional, when you start to write a novel or make a record album or whatever it is, the amateur will think, oh, I've got to knock this out, you know, in three days, like Sylvester Stallone writing yeah. a screenplay in three days or something. But yeah. the pro knows that it takes a long time. you got to be patient. And a professional also knows how to deal with adversity. A professional can accept rejection and rejection after rejection after rejection and keep his eye on the, on the ball. A professional also teach you, and these are virtues that you have to kind of teach yourself. A professional doesn't take rejection personally. Just like when you would be cold calling or something like that, you understand that uh, the person, it's, it's not you the person is rejecting. They're busy. They've got other stuff on their mind and you don't, whereas an amateur will take it personally and feel, oh, people hate me. I'm a loser, uh, you know, and we'll let that get to them. And it's a professional, like I said, plays hurt. Even when there are reasons to quit, the professional won't quit. In a way, it's just like when we work at our job, our bosses won't insist they make us come into work, you know, or they won't pay us. Here's another interesting thing before I forget this. I remember when I first came out to, I'll kind of ramble a little bit here, Mark. I'll give a long answer. When I first came out to Hollywood and tried to make it as a, as a screenwriter, I discovered that uh, a lot of screenwriters had their own one-man corporations and they didn't write as themselves. It wasn't like Mark McGinnis is the writer. It was their corporation, wishfulthinking.com or whatever. And you would be hired out FSO, for services of. Mm -hmm. You're of Mark McGinnis. Yeah. And what I, I thought that was great because what it did is it, it allowed you to kind of split yourself in half. And yeah. there was the horse and there was the rider. Mm -hmm. You know, there was the rider who was going to actually do the work. And then there was the sort of supervisor, the boss. And it was you yourself. And that's a, a real professional way to look at look at the world because when we only see ourselves as the horse or the boss, then we just want to head back for the barn, you know, and get in the stall and go to sleep. <laughs> when we're also the, the trainer of yeah. this thoroughbred, then we know that we got to say, hey, we got to get out today and train a little bit. You know, we have to take care of ourselves, eat right, and get some exercise, all that kind of stuff. So the professional kind of splits himself in two and has and, and is able to be his own boss and to keep himself going in the face of adversity. I think that's a really good point, particularly as because I know there'll be a lot of people listening to this call who are self-employed, uh, freelancers, entrepreneurs, and it's that thing of, you know, how do you get yourself to do it when there is no boss? You know, there's if you're at home with a computer, then th there's nobody there to know except you whether or not you, you do it or not. And that idea of saying, well, now I'm Mark the writer, or now I'm, you know, Mark the, you know, the, the accountant, or, you know, the, now I'm Mark the boss of, you know, wishful thinking, or, um, you know, partner in lateral action. It does change the perspective, believe the neuroscientists tell us that you're accessing different circuitry in your brain, in your yeah. system, when you identify with these different sub-personalities. So I think that's a really important point to bear in mind. Well, what it really is, I think, Mark, is it's, it's the difference between externally imposed discipline and self-discipline. Yeah. You know, like when you're in the army, you got a sergeant, you know, standing over you, kicking your butt, you know, up the uh, up the road. But when you're an entrepreneur or an independent businessman, you have to be kicking your own butt up the road. So that is another great breakthrough that one 
makes that really launches you when you go from externally imposed discipline to, to internally imposed discipline. That makes all the difference in the world. Okay, just, just before we go on to what's on the other side of resistance, I think there's another aspect of your approach in the war of art that I'm particularly interested in, which is this idea of having a routine and having, there's a wonderful description where you talk about what you do, the different objects in your office. <laughs> right, that, all know, the rituals, yeah. Ritual to warm up. You know, could you say a little bit about that and how you think that can can help people get going? I think we need to, resistance is so powerful powerful, in my opinion, yeah. that we need to enlist every ally we can on our side to overcome it. And one of the greatest allies of all is habit. And if we can make ourselves, it's like that. there was a quote in The War of Art from Somerset Maugham where they, someone asked him if he wrote on a schedule or only when inspiration struck him. And he said, I write only when inspiration strikes me. He says, fortunately, it strikes me at nine o'clock sharp every morning. <laughs> you know, what he was saying was that he had a routine. Actually, I'm working with a friend of mine on a project right now, Randy Wallace, who wrote Braveheart, mm -hmm. and he has this wonderful little thing that he calls little successes. Right. And as the day starts, before he actually sits down and faces the, the music, the blank page, he'll go to the gym, he'll do uh, other sort of little rituals mm -hmm. that will give him a kind of a string of successes so that when he finally, you know, actually sits down and goes to work, that he's already got a, some momentum going. So ritual is another great thing. I, I, I believe that, you know, the, the office, the studio, the dojo, whatever it is, should be a kind of a sacred space. And when you enter it, you should say a prayer to the muse or whatever yeah. and uh, leave all other thoughts behind and that kind of ritual sort of like a martial artist would use or a, or a uh, yoga practitioner can really help you habit practice ritual it all it's every trick you can think of to get you a little momentum and and get an overcome uh, resistance and get down to work don't know if i mentioned to you my first professional training was in hypnotherapy ah no so. i didn't know that all oh, right. Well, you see, because I'm interested in this whole ritual and routine because, you know, one of the things I was taught is one way to induce a trance is to go just, just keep repeating a set of actions in a certain set of unique circumstances, and they become associated with that state of mind. Ah. It's very similar to what you've described, that creating that sacred space, if you like, is getting yourself into that trance state or however you want to describe it, where everything else, as you just said, gets put to the back of your mind and you're wholly there for, for your writing or your acting or your running or whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, let me ask you something, Mark, on this subject. I myself am very suggestible, and I think a lot of artists and entrepreneurs are. That must be a big force in hypnotherapy, isn't it? Isn't it that you, you suggest something to somebody? How does that work? There's different schools of thought on it, but my experience is, actually, this is how I got into coaching and, and training with artists and writers and, and creative professionals generally it was because I was doing hypnotherapy and I would get like say a novelist coming in and saying don't tell my editor but I've spent the advance and I haven't written the novel you know can you can you advise <laughs> me to, to get going and, and write it or you know an actor with a stage fright and one of the things I noticed was that these people because they were so trance is part of their professional equipment you know the ability to get into that state of mind where the words flow or the actions flow or if you're a dancer that you know you the movement it's it's right kind of unconscious or, or, or automatic at least i think if you're a, a creative person in in that broad sense you take to to tr you know formal trance work like a duck to water i think 
Uh -huh. It is so familiar in what you're doing. In fact, you know, a lot of the time you don't really need to formally hypnotize an artist or a writer or somebody like that. You just ask them how they start work and then they kind of talk themselves through it. And they ah, really? The Interesting. To glaze over. So, yeah, I would, I would definitely say that that's necessarily, say, suggestibility because it implies that as the hypnotist you're in control, but just the ability to get into a highly focused, highly creative and productive trance state, I would certainly say is a characteristic of people who are successful in any field, really, and particularly, the, you know, the artists and writers and so on. Okay, so actually this leads us quite neatly into my next question, which was about what's on the other side of resistance? Because, you know, I think you gave us a little glimpse of it earlier on with the great story about you sitting down there with a typewriter. It sounded like you came through the resistance and you said you found that you were happy. Yeah, that's, in fact, I just, I'm sorry, Mark, what? No, 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 go ahead. Yeah, we, when we were talking earlier, you know, I was saying that I, oddly enough, I just on my blog, I just, the, the post that's up there right now is on this exact subject, and it's what gets called "Is Writing Fun?" And, I'm, and what I say in there is that you might think that for me talking about resistance and how hard it is to do all the stuff that I would say it isn't fun, but it is fun. It's once you sort of have dived into the cold pool mm -hmm. and you start swimming, yeah. then things and you get into that flow. But for me, it's interesting. People sometimes say to me, "Well, you know, what do you do for fun, Steve?" You know, I mean, and the real answer for me is that my work is my fun. I was in this in this blog post, I tell a story that a few years ago, I, I came over to your part of the world and I stayed for a month on a farm up in uh, Golsby in Scotland. There were sheep on the farm and, you know, they grew barley and stuff like that. And it was just great dog, a border collie named Jack, who uh, kind of ran the entire farm. And in the morning, you would see Angus, the farmer, getting on his four-wheel ATV, and Jack would jump up in this little seat behind him, and they would head up towards where the sheep were. And Jack was like, in his element, he was just like glowing with happiness. And he was just a working dog. And all day long, he took the sheep from one pasture to another. He brought them down to the pens. He ran. He just ran the whole farm. And at the end of the day, Angus would, you know, ruffle his head and say, you know, good work, Jack, and put out a little bowl of food for him and Jack was just totally happy. I realized watching Jack that that's me. That's how I that's how I feel. I'm kind of a working dog and and once I get into the flow, there's a tremendous resistance to get go to getting into it. But once I'm into it, it just pays me back in solid gold. And by the end of the day, any um, sense of anxiety or unease, whatever is totally gone. I feel like I've earned my place on the planet for that day. It, you know, the the work that I do has really saved my life. I mean, I was going down when I turned the corner. So, and I think that's true for any artist or entrepreneur. Once things are working, if you open your own restaurant or your own, you're working on a, a video game that you're designing, or you're, you know, writing a play, whatever it is. Once you're into the flow of that, it's really kind of, you know, divine energy that's flowing into you. And to me, it's that's my fun. I don't, I don't really, you know, I go out to dinner or play a little golf or something like that. But my real fun is doing the work. And sometimes people don't understand that, you know, that you might be close to. But that's my fun. Well, it's, it's one of my favorite quotes is from Noel Coward, where he, he just said, work is more fun than fun. <laughs> I never heard that, but that's that's really, I think I, I would agree with that, too. In fact, Henry Miller, I wish I, I, I don't have this quote. He has a great quote like that, too, where he says something like that thing that other people call life really has never held that much interest for me. <laughs> he says, what I'm interested in is what I'm doing right now, by which he meant writing. And uh, there's, there's a lot to that. I think a lot of times the characters in the books that I'm working on are more interesting to me than people in my own real life. I hate to say it, but it's true. 
Well, we won't, we won't play them this. <laughs> but in a way, that makes absolute sense if you think about it, because if you're a writer and, you, and, and characters are evolving in a story that you're working on, the reason that they have energy for you, even if you're not consciously aware of this, is because they must be representing some issue that's important to you and that you're trying to work through in your soul. Mm -hmm. So these characters are like really your best friends in a way, even the villains, because yeah. you're all sort of on the same page attacking the same issue, even if you, it's not clear to you as you're doing it. Okay, so I think that's a great answer to the question, you know, that it, it really is worth persisting through the resistance, because if you don't do that, then you end up with a dissatisfaction and no amount of money or external success or, or validation is, is ever going to compensate you for losing that, what you've described as the pure gold of, of really being in your element and doing, you know, your, your most important work. Yeah, I think it's absolutely true. In fact, let me, uh, we're probably going to run along here, but Mark, but you That's can... good. It's all good stuff, Steve. So. You can edit it down, but just I want to say one thing. There's a guy I, I know named Tom Laughlin, who's actually was the Billy Jack in the movie, if you've ever heard of that movie. And he now is a kind of a Jungian therapist who works with cancer patients. And one of the things that he finds in his type of therapy is that a patient will say to him, he'll get into their life story, into their deepest kind of unconscious stuff. And a patient will say to him something like, you know, I played the violin when I was a kid and I loved it and I gave it up because, I, you know, when I had a family, I just couldn't do it. Or I always wanted to, uh, to go to India and work with Mother Teresa or I wanted to do some sort of uh, philanthropic work. And I, I gave it up because I had to do, you know, the, the, the real work of, of making a living. And what Tom Laughlin will encourage them, these patients to do is to do that now. Go right. back to the violin. Do a philanthropic thing. Do what it, the dream was that you, that you let go. And what happens in many cases, according to Tom Laughlin, is that cancers will go into remission. Now, yeah. I know cancer is a very serious subject, and I don't want to say that this is sort of a new agey thing is, you know, is an answer or anything like that. But I think there's something really to that, that when we don't do what it is we were born to do, what we're called to do, what our higher self is calling us to do, that it can make us sick. All kinds of things can happen in our bodies. And the flip side of that is that we can maybe cure that by doing what we were meant to do in the first place. In other words, this this is really serious stuff. Resistance will kill you. It's, it's absolutely true, Steve. You know, just in response to that, I've been working as a psychotherapist for a number of years. I've not worked with cancer but I have worked with some physical illnesses and it's I've come across a process very similar to what you've described that when somebody goes down a path where they feel they're not being true to their their soul to their authentic self whatever you want to call it and they go through the, you know, the logical what they ought to do that, that is, is kind of conforming to the expectations of society then they, in quite a few cases that has been it's, it seems to have been the root of the illness and when they make I, a decision like what you've described to do something differently to get back in touch with their real interests and passions I've seen with my own eyes people get well again you know because of I believe it completely like I say that moment for me when I sat down in my little old typewriter just was like a lightning bolt it changed everything and I would say one other thing if people anybody is listening to this and says to themselves well you know I've got a family I've got kids I can't do that and that's certainly true but when Steven Soderbergh won the Oscar for I guess it was for traffic a few years ago one of the things in his speech really struck me he said kind of held up his little statue right there and he said this is for everybody who puts in just one hour a day trying to pursue their artistic or entrepreneurial dream and so I would say that one doesn't need to quit 
One's job to get a turnaround just an hour a day will make a lot of difference because it's turning the battleship around in a way. You know, it takes a long time to turn a battleship around, but one hour a day will do it. Yeah, I've given that very task to clients and I've seen the results from that. And, you know, and I think there's an important point here that your soul, your, your authentic self, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't necessarily want you to trash your financial life and put your, yourself and your family at risk. No. It just wants yeah. you to, to actually make some space in your life for what's most important to you and what you've kind of put on this earth to do. And it's amazing how much people can do, uh, you know, with just, I think I, I figured it out one time. If you do an hour a day, I don't know what it is, you know, however many hours it comes out over a week or a year, it comes out to like 80 days a year or something like that. That's just a lot of time. You know, you can do a lot with that. You can indeed. Another quote I like is the British poet Philip Larkin. He said, well, you can only really write for two hours a day anyway. So he said, That's oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's that, right. Just get into trouble. <laughs> yeah. So that was explaining why he was a librarian. Uh, well, okay. Einstein was a patent clerk, right? But it's, it's interesting, actually. This reminds me of Jonathan Fields, who I know you've interviewed recently. Yes. Blog. A really great interview, actually, about his creative process. And it's one of his things, actually, that we're now at a time in, in history because of the way of development technology and society and the Internet and so on, that there are more opportunities to follow your dream on a full-time basis. And actually, yeah, the, the it's old, so true. The jobs security that that you know we were used to be urged to go for at the expense of the dream is actually proving a lot less secure than it used to be so i mean one of Indeed. his arguments is that security is an illusion anyway so you might as well follow your heart and find a way of pursuing that and you know seeing if you can somehow find a way to earn a living from that i mean this is another topic i'm interested to ask you about steve because you know that this whole web 2.0 and social media right circus that's on at the moment you and i both grew up in the pre-digital age and you've been writing a lot longer than me and it's you know interesting to see that you've enthusiastically embraced blogging and being active on and social media I can follow you on Twitter I'm curious how come you're not one of those old-school writers <laughs> who stands on the sidelines and says you know this modern technology is dumbing everything down it's got nothing to do with real art well that's a really interesting issue mark and I'm really not a very savvy uh, on this as you can tell from when we were you and I were talking on the phone and you were trying to teach me how to work these headphones to run my head right now but I'll give you this just the short version of this story is that as you know newspapers are a dying breed and book reviews don't exist anymore except in little places and it was became very clear to me in fact even when the war of art came out like well let me back up a minute the first couple books that i wrote the legend of bagger vance and gates of fire which was like in the mid 90s when they came out they got reviewed everywhere i was just a brand new writer they got reviewed everywhere they got reviewed in the new york times all and i thought well gee this is pretty easy business here and then <laughs> newspapers kind of you know they started pulling back on that and then by the time I was down to when I did the War of Art and a couple of other books, you know, the say over the last four or five years, yeah. they'd come out and they would just sink without a trace. There were no reviews, no, so people didn't know the books were even there. And as I was working on my uh, most recent uh, book, which is called Killing Rommel, it's a World War II story, I knew it was going to come out in about six months. And I thought, this is going to just sink like a stone. There's going to be no reviews. We're all dying here in the, in the, in the fiction business. So I just said, I got to do something. And I started to explore what was 
was going on in the web. And I wound up doing a, uh, a video that cost me a fortune. Went out into the California desert. We had like uh, army vehicles. And it was like a major production. And that kind of got me into just sort of be trying to be proactive. It, did, it didn't work, by the way. I wound up spending like 10 times as much money as ever came in. But it then sort of got me into the idea that you do have to, a writer these days, the world has changed. There are no more book reviews. There's no, uh, when a book gets published, um, there's no way to get the word out unless you do it yourself. So um, I've been trying to learn. I'm still a dinosaur and haven't figured it out at all. But I, uh, but um, you do have to have some kind of a presence out there. And, and also I found that even if it didn't work, even if I was spending more time than there was a payoff for, it cheered me up. It kept me from being, you know, getting into a state of despond over it because it's just, it's just always better to be active and to be doing something. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that, that, ha that happens, I've found, is that you might not succeed in the way you thought you would succeed, but some unexpected, serendipitous positive outcome will come from it. For instance, this video I did for Killing Rommel didn't help the book very much, but it resulted kind of circuitously in there being a movie deal. So right. it kind of paid off in a way I never would have expected. So I'm all in favor. I'm not I'm not much of it. I don't want to get into like Twittering too much or anything like that. <laughs> but I certainly think people, if you are an artist or, or an entrepreneur, you got to have some kind of presence on the web. You just have to. And, you know, so the, the days of the agent and the editor taking care of all that stuff. Uh, yeah, so they're long gone. Long gone. It's too bad because that was a great world, but it's all—it's <laughs> it's like the Jurassic Park. It's over. But it, I mean, it's interesting that similar to you, I've got whole really interest in this this whole content marketing thing. You know, the idea that you don't—the best way to market yourself isn't necessarily to be writing marketing speak and advertising, which I'm guessing isn't necessarily going to be the most congenial for somebody like you to write. Your writings, you know, really solid, thought-provoking action oriented articles on the blog which you know I'm guessing would be you know quite congenial to you to write and that actually functions as your marketing I guess <laughs> I don't know if it's if it's if it's working at all but it is interesting what you're doing and what I'm doing and Seth Godin and uh, so many other people out there it's it's giving things away hmm. it's sort of interesting it's like you really share for free what you've learned and uh, I'm not even sure how it works you sort of supposedly what goes around comes around I don't know if it's been coming around for me but not but uh, it's a whole interesting new paradigm where you give it away and then other people are giving it away too too. And um, I don't know. It's very interesting. I, I'm not sure where. I don't think the model has has solidified yet. It's kind of in flux. But it's a very interesting new um, paradigm that we're dealing with here. Trying to trying to find some way to make this work. This new world work. Yeah, it's I completely agree. It's very much in flux. You know, there's a certain element of uncertainty, or if you want to put a positive spin on it, magic to it. You know, like uh, Hugh McLeod over at Gaping Void has got a great right. quote. He says, "If you meet your audience's needs directly by being generous." by giving them, in his case, it's cartoons, or it could be writing, or it could be music. He said, over time, they will meet your needs indirectly, you know, because he, he said... Ah, I like that. It's, it's, I never heard it, that. That's very good. It, I mean, he's, he's great here. You know, it's a great way of making things happen indirectly. You know, you send out waves you on the radar of, of different people, and, you know, all kinds of interesting connections can come out of that. And for me, one of the ironies of this, one of the actual positive ironies, is that, that the artists and the writers and the creative types who have traditionally been, shall we say, a little averse to marketing and sales are actually the ones with a big advantage 
when it comes to this because if you're I don't know Best Buy uh, supermarket it's uh, you're not necessarily you wouldn't necessarily think of yourself as being in the media business so you've suddenly got to change your mindset well what we're going to write about what we're going to make videos about what what can we do to put out there that's going to be interesting whereas for you sitting there at your computer it's second nature to be to be writing and to be putting out that's stuff. true I never thought about that that's, that's I like that too so you know aren't we the lucky ones <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it is, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. I know we're rambling like mad here, Mark, but I was uh, listening to a tape or something and it was, uh, uh, I think it was a book called The Automatic Millionaire. And the, the author of it was saying that he could ask five specific questions of anybody that say was 21 years old or young or not. And he could predict by their answers whether they were going to succeed in the future. Right. And a couple of the questions were made some sense. One was like, do you own your own home? And another one was, do you own the place where you work and obviously that was you know a financial uh, yeah. plus if you did something but the fifth question was really interesting to me and it, it was do you tithe meaning do you contribute to charity or do you give back right okay to, yeah yeah and I, I, when I heard that, I thought, why would that have anything to do with, you know, succeeding? But on some sort of mysterious, what goes around comes around level, the idea of kind of giving stuff does, you know, is a positive force. And it, it, it somehow comes back one way or another, a way that ways that you didn't expect. It's interesting, you know, it reminded me one of the quotes from the Zig Ziglar tapes that I was listening to when I was in my cold calling days. One of the quotes like, he kept coming back to and kept going back through my mind was he said, I believe you can have anything I, can't, I won't do the accent he says i believe you can have anything <laughs> you want because if you'll just help enough other people get what they want you know that it's this generosity you know he yeah. talking about sales he said if you focus on actually how can i help somebody get what they want through this product or service i'm selling that's what's going to bring you wealth in the long run you know in the short term you might have a shortfall here or there or you might have to you know turn down an opportunity but overall you know i think it's that generous mindset particularly in the social media which yeah is usually it's, the it's mysterious isn't it but it, it's something to it okay well Maybe we could, um, we've been talking for a while now. What I'd like to do is to, before we close, is to, maybe you could give us a quick guided tour of your own website, stephenpressfield.com, because it, like I said, it's a fabulous resource, and you've divided it up into to different sections according to the, the topics that you're covering. Could you give us a quick overview of, of the different sections of the site? Well, it's it's, uh, <laughs> it's sort of a work in progress. It just, uh, in fact, uh, I have to, tip my hat to my wonderful web designer Jeff Simon who put this together a really smart young guy like you're like Tony and um, it Again, it's sort of on the theory of giving it away. You know, I had two. I had two websites where one of them was about a, a certain cause that is dear and dear to my heart, which is Afghanistan. And this was I had a website that was entirely about Afghanistan, about military stuff. About uh, I'm a believer that uh, we need to work with the tribes in Afghanistan rather than what we're doing now. So, and then then I was doing another part of the website, which was a, a, a thing I call Writing Wednesdays. That it was a sort of a continuation of the War of Art. I would do like once a week a kind of a new chapter it was about writing or entrepreneurialship but just what we're talking about today mark everybody said this is crazy these are two different things and you're driving everybody crazy with it so so we just designed a new one that's really just kind of a, a press field site that's trying to be helpful to, to people and it has it, it has as a centerpiece the writing Wednesdays that you know the stuff about entrepreneurialship and um, resistance and stuff like and then it also has as a sidebar the Afghanistan stuff and then I'm doing separate pieces as you and I know it's almost like a magazine uh, there's another 
another ongoing series called The Creative Process, where I ask people like you with lateral action and everything, how, what your process is, and do interviews there. And then I have um, various other resources on there that I'm just trying to, the stuff that I'm into and what books and movies I've found interesting in, in all the various research I've done on all my uh, historical stuff, so that it is, I'm just trying to make it kind of a little uh, one-stop shopping place where people can kind of, you know, nose around and find out little, little stuff that's going on in my head for whatever that's worth. And it's, again, it's it takes a lot of time, but it's fun. And it makes you feel, from my side, at least that I'm doing something proactive. And you get a lot of feedback. A lot of people write in, and uh, I've made a bunch of friends like you, uh, which is another big part of this thing. I just was talking earlier about this uh, game, this book, The Game of Numbers by Nick Murray. We mm-hmm. talk about cold calling and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just met Nick in this way like a month ago, and right. he's a great new friend. It's wonderful. All right. If, you, if you're listening, the website is at stephenpressfield.com, which is Stephen with a V. Like I say, spend plenty of time wandering around there, exploring Stephen's thoughts and his interests. There's video content there as well as text, so it's highly recommended. Stephen, final question. What can we expect from you in the future? Have you got any current projects that, or upcoming projects that you'd like to tell us about? Well, uh, I always, I always do, like all of us do. I'm, I'm actually, I've been working on a book for a couple of years that will hopefully be coming out in a, about a year or so. It's, it's a, a war story, not surprisingly, that's set, you know, about a generation into the future. And uh, I won't say any more about that uh, because okay. I'm superstitious. Okay. Uh, with Randy Wallace, I'm working on uh, the screenplay version of uh, Killing Rommel, which is a, a novel, that my most recent novel. Uh-huh. And then I'm going to do another War of Art. I'm going to do kind of a follow-up to the War of Art, which I'm not even sure exactly what form it'll take, but it'll probably be a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about today. Fantastic. It always, like, like we were talking about, what's the opposite side of resistance to me, and I'm sure this is true for every entrepreneur or artist, it's a great source of strength to know that you've got something in the pipeline, you know, one or two things. It gives you hope, and it's fun, and it, it feeds your soul. And I want to say to you, Mark, thank you very much for having me on here today. It was It's great to make new friends, and uh, I hope this has been helpful to the people uh, who have been tuning in here. Thank you, Steve, ever so much. I mean, it, it's been fascinating and, and helpful for me, and I've got absolutely no doubt that will be the same for our listeners. And now I, and the next Next thing is I got to do a podcast with you. I'm gonna, so we'll, we'll put that in the books. Okay, let's put that I'll in do that advice. I'll interview you about lateral action and everything that uh, you and Brian and Tony are doing. I would love to help. Thank you, Steve, so much. I know we'll stay in touch. So thanks everybody for listening. Uh, if just like to close by saying, if you'd like a full transcript of this interview, head back on over to Lateral Action. Uh, we'll have a link up there on the site to get the interview transcribed. Uh, you can have a read of that at your leisure. 